I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we will hear God's word to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon him once again in prayer to ask for his help. So please pray with me. Father, you have told us and we know that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we humbly ask that you would speak to us now, that we might live. Many of us are perhaps weak and weary as we run the race of faith, and we know that you are our only strength. So by your word and by your spirit, would you please give us strength to endure, to keep running. And we ask particularly this morning that you would do so by once again helping us understand who you truly are, not only as our God, but as our Father. Help me, by your grace, to preach with clarity and conviction in accordance with your word to exalt Christ and not myself. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. So we heard 
Last week, from the opening verses of Hebrews 12, God commands us to run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This teaches us that the Christian life is a long-distance race of faith. And faith must cross the finish line in order to receive the reward. And so we learned that we must lay aside every weight and every sin that would slow us down. And we must learn to look to the one who spurs us on, namely Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The truth, though, is that running with endurance is hard. And at times we become weak and weary in the race. Circumstances distract us. Sin drags us down. Perhaps persecution discourages us. The Hebrews who received this letter were experiencing that kind of weakness and weariness, which is why their loving pastor wrote them this sermonic letter to exhort them, to encourage them. He writes, as you see in verse 3, so that they may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He writes, so they will find strength to lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees. That's his aim throughout this letter. He wants to revive them. He wants to strengthen them. But why were they so weak and weary? Why was their endurance in danger of failing? Well, we learned back in chapter 10 that one reason was the persecution they had faced in the past and which they were anticipating in the future. They had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, which included public reproach and affliction, imprisonment, and even the loss of their property. And such suffering not only has the power to frighten us, it has the potential to confuse us. And when we are confused by our suffering, we often become confused by the God who ordained that suffering. And so one of the, the greatest weights that wearies the souls of men is a false conception of who God is. When I was in seventh grade, I was very excited that I was finally able to, to join a, a junior pro basketball league. I loved playing basketball growing up. It was one of my favorite things to do. I went to every camp my parents would let me go to. I played for my school, and here was another opportunity that I could play and play against even better competition. But my excitement very quickly faded because my coach was a former football player who at that time was also a current prison guard. And apparently that is how he approached every sphere of his life. He was perhaps the angriest person that I have ever met. When he yelled at you, which he did a lot, it was so loud that your ears would begin to ring. 
You could never please him. You always felt like you were a disappointment. I, I don't think I ever saw the man smile. He was never satisfied, and he always let you know how he felt about your poor performance. And the longer the season went on, the worse we got as a team, for we were terrified of this man. And so it wasn't long before I dreaded every practice and game. I would get physically ill. My joy and my love of playing was replaced by fear and dread. And so I felt very weak and weary, not from the physical exertion, but just from the mental anguish. And sadly, I think Christians sometimes view God like my seventh grade basketball coach. They think that God is always angry at them, always disappointed with every little thing they do, that he's always just yelling at them, you have to do better, and he is looking for every little failure he can find so that he can punish you. False conceptions of God weigh down the soul, weaken faith, and produce weary runners. Christian, God does not want you to have a false conception of him, which is one of the reasons he has spoken to you this word in Hebrews chapter 12. And so I just want from this text to remind you of three simple truths that I've preached to you before, but which I need to preach to you again. I want to remind you of these truths so that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted and you will be able to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. These truths are, number one, that God is your Father. Number two, that God loves you. And number three, that even God's discipline of you is proof of his love for you. So first, you need to know that God is your Father. In verse 2, the author encouraged us to run by looking to Jesus. And he continues this thought in verses 3 and 4, telling us again to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And that is, of course, referring to Jesus, who was despised and rejected by men. He was mocked, he was beaten, and he was crucified on the cross. To consider means to reason with careful deliberation. So now we have a, a better understanding of what it means for us to look to Jesus. We can't physically see him now, but we look to him as we set our minds upon his person and his work, which he has revealed to us in his word. As I said last week, we do this because Jesus is the perfect example, power, and finish line of our faith. And one of the things we remember when we consider Jesus, as the author tells us to, is that what we have had to endure is not actually even close to what Jesus had to endure. The author makes this observation in verse 4. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, the author doesn't 
make this observation simply to rebuke the Hebrews, as if he's saying, your suffering really isn't all that bad, so you just need to suck it up, you big babies. It could be worse. Maybe you've had people try to comfort you in this way. You know, it could be worse. Well, yeah, true, not very helpful. No, he makes this observation, I think, for three reasons. First, he is, in this way, gently reminding them, you can endure more than you think you can endure. When you're running or exercising in various ways, there's usually points when you begin to think, I could not possibly run another mile. I could not possibly do another pull-up. Maybe you're thinking, I couldn't do one pull-up, let alone a second one. I couldn't possibly lift one more pound. You feel like you are at the literal end of your physical capacity. But the truth is, our mental capacity often fills up a lot quicker than our actual capacity. And if we were pushed, we would discover we could actually endure more than we feel like we can endure. I think of the scene in one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the horse and his boy, when the horse Bree, as they are running through the desert, feels like he cannot go any faster or any further without stopping for a snack. And the other Horse, when shyly says to him, I, I feel just like Bree that I can't go on. But when horses have humans with spurs and things on their backs, aren't they often made to go on when they're feeling like this? And then they find they can. I mean, oughtn't we be able to do even more now that we're free? And then a little bit later in the story, there's a lion chasing the the horses, and C.S. Lewis writes, and Bree now discovered that he had not really been going as fast, not quite as fast as he could. The Hebrews felt they could not possibly endure more suffering, but they had not endured as much as they could. They had not endured as much as Jesus had endured. They had not endured as much as the Old Testament saints cataloged in chapter 11 had endured. And so we are reminded that we actually can endure more than we think we can, and God knows exactly how much we can endure. Second, this exhortation reminds the Hebrews that God has not placed on them any weight that he did not place upon Jesus. It, it's hard to follow a, a general, a leader who you feel like keeps asking you to do what he never does. He makes you do all the hard work and he just sits back and relaxes. The struggle against sin in verse 4 most likely refers to external persecution in, in this case. And so the author reminds them that the Hebrews had not yet endured the extent of persecution that Jesus had. Yes, they had lost freedoms and property, but they had not yet lost their lives. And so when they begin to think, as we all often begin to think, this isn't fair 
They must remember that the Lord is never asking them to do anything that he did not do himself. Your suffering for Christ will never outpace Christ's suffering for you. The gospel includes the wondrous news that God saved his people from their sin and suffering, not by just sitting back and lounging around and saying, figure it out, but through the person of his son, taking on our flesh, bearing the burden of our suffering, paying the penalty for our sin. He took it upon himself. He, he didn't stay away. Jesus became like you, and as we were reminded in chapter 2, this means he understands you and he is willing to help you. You have a sympathetic and faithful high priest. So you, you can't complain to God saying you're too hard on me and you don't know how hard this is that, of what you're asking me to do. In Jesus, God does understand. Remember Christ's exhortation to his disciples, those who were to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And again, he says to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Third, this exhortation reminds the Hebrews that Jesus suffered to the point of shedding his blood as God's only begotten and beloved son. In other words, as they were to set their minds upon Jesus and his suffering, they were to remember that Jesus suffered as God's son. His suffering came from the hands of his loving and pleased father, not his angry and disappointed judge. And so in this way, the author wants the Hebrews to understand that there is a, a, a form of suffering that falls within the category of sonship. For the suffering of Jesus teaches us that as Christians, we suffer as sons, as daughters, as God's children. And so he transitions in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, which says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, before applying this passage to you, I just want to observe how amazing this is that the author of Hebrews, writing to, to New Testament Christians, takes an Old Testament passage that was written long before they ever lived, and he says, don't you remember how God said this to you? 
not just to people a long time ago. This is one reason why before I read the passage that I'm going to preach on, I, I say, this is God's word to you. This was not just written to the Hebrews any more than Proverbs was just written to Old Testament Israelites. This is not God's dead, outdated word to people who lived a long time ago. Every single word that has been written down in the scriptures is God's present, living, active word to you. If that's true of Proverbs 3, it's true of Hebrews 12. But this passage helps the Hebrews and us remember that God always relates to his people as their father. The sphere of sonship is the only sphere in which you relate to God as a Christian. Meaning that, yes, God is your creator. God is your redeemer. God is your king. God is your judge. God is your Lord. God is your savior. But in all of these other ways that he is relating to you, he is always relating to you, Christian, as your father. I think of when my wife homeschools our children. Is she now functioning as their teacher? Yes. But has she stopped functioning as their mother? No. It's not that when they sit down for school, she stops being their mom, and now she's relating, I am your teacher. She is now teaching them as their mother. That's how God relates to us. There are many things that he is doing, but he is always doing them as our father. Therefore, every word that he speaks to you, he speaks as your father. Everything he does for you, he does as your father. Everything he gives to you, whether it is, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, he gives it to you as your father. So God never stops being your father. His grace to you is always fatherly grace. His power is a fatherly power. His wisdom is a fatherly wisdom. His correction is a fatherly correction. His providence is a fatherly providence. So Christian, whenever you are asking yourself the question, who is God to me right now? Regardless of what circumstances you are facing, the answer is always, God is my Father. And when you ask yourself, how is he relating to me right now? Again, the answer, regardless of your particular circumstances, whether things are going well or not so well, the answer is, he is relating to me as my father. No matter what else may be true, that is always true, which is why God addresses his people, my son, my daughter. He is reminding you of your relationship with him. But number two, we, we see in this text that God 
loves you. Just as God always relates to you as your Father, and again, I'm, I'm here speaking of God the Father, so he is always relating to the Christian in love. You notice in verse 6, which is still quoting from Proverbs 3, that God is speaking to the one he loves, to the one he receives. Now, for some of you, the, the thought of God as, as Father is immediately encouraging, and it gives you a sense of love, security, protection, provision, probably because you had a loving earthly father. You have a loving earthly father. I've been blessed with a wonderful dad, never wondering if he loves me. And so the idea of God as father has always encouraged me. For those of you with loving earthly fathers, the good news for you is that your heavenly father is just infinitely more and better than they are. But for others of you, perhaps the thought of God as Father is not immediately a very encouraging thought. Perhaps your experience with earthly fathers has not been one of love. But I hope you can still imagine what it would be like to have a loving, caring Father. So for you, think of how you wish that your Father had loved and cared for you. And know that that is how your Heavenly Father does love and care for you. Again, just infinitely more and better than you can even imagine. So the good news of the gospel is not only that salvation in Christ means God is always your Father, it means He is always relating to you in love as you receive Christ by faith. So there is never a moment of the Christian's existence when he or she is venturing outside the sphere of God's love. Which means, Christian, nothing you can do can ever make God stop being your father, and nothing you do can ever make God stop loving you. We remember Paul's glorious words in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, even for a fraction of a second, separates the Christian from God's love in Christ. God can no more stop loving you than he can stop loving Jesus. So when you consider Jesus and see how the Father has eternally loved him, you ought to see how he eternally loves you. For you are united to Jesus by faith. And so just as every word that God speaks to you is spoken as a father, it is spoken in love. Just as everything he does for you is done as a father, it is done in love. Just as everything he gives to you, whether pleasant or unpleasant, is given as a father, it is given in love. For the Christian, the sovereign hands of God are the exact same hands as the loving hands of the Father. What you receive from one, you are always receiving from the other. Does this mean that God is never angry with his children? 
No, it does not mean that. Does it mean he is never displeased with our behavior? No, it doesn't mean that. Parents, you love your kids. Your kids make you angry. Your kids at times displease you when they disobey. Sin always angers and displeases God. But what this means is that even our sin does not separate us from God's love or sever his delight in us. So even if God's actions towards us involve his displeasure, they are never devoid of his love. I get angry at my kids at times. Sometimes that anger is justified, but I never stop loving them. Even when our children are in one sense objects of our displeasure, they are still objects of our love. So, how much more true is this for our Heavenly Father? So, Christian, again, whenever you ask the question, regardless of what your circumstances are, when you ask, why is this happening to me? The answer is, in part, it is happening to you because God loves you. And if you are wondering, how does God feel about me right now? Whatever else may be true, the answer, again, is, in part, my father loves me. You must understand that God is always your father, and you must understand that he always loves you and acts towards you in love. But third, you need to understand that God's discipline is proof of his love. And this is the crux of the author's argument in this text, because he recognizes that what the Hebrews are experiencing doesn't feel a whole lot like love. Suffering feels like hatred, not love. It feels like displeasure, not delight. And this is why the author is appealing to Proverbs 3, because Proverbs 3 recognizes that God's fatherly discipline can feel burdensome. We can feel weary under it. But it also puts his discipline, his reproof, his chastisement within the category of fatherly love. And it's only when we understand that God's discipline is still his love to us that we will find the strength to endure it. See, if we believe that God's discipline is nothing but his anger and disappointment, if we view him like my seventh grade basketball coach, who's always yelling, always dissatisfied, then we will crumble under the weight of discouragement. But that is never how God is relating to us. And that's the encouragement of Proverbs 3. For it says that God is only disciplining the one that he loves, not the one he hates. Saying discipline is a sign of God's reception, not his rejection. Therefore, the author puts all of the Hebrews' suffering, suffering that may be result 
resulting from their sin, suffering which may not be resulting from their sin, including the, the suffering of persecution. They're being persecuted not because they're doing something wrong, but because they're doing something right. And he's saying even that is God's discipline, and it is proof of God's love. So we need to ask, what is discipline? Because when we hear that word, a lot of us just automatically think punishment. Discipline equals negative reinforcement. Now, the word includes punishment, but it's far more than that. Biblical discipline includes the notions of training, of instruction, of firm guidance, in addition, yes, to reproof, correction, punishment. But the idea of of training helps us understand that everything God is doing is trying to help us grow in strength and endurance. The idea of education shows us that God is always instructing and helping us grow in wisdom and knowledge. Really, biblical discipline amounts to everything that goes into helping a human being mature and grow in the ability to live and die well. It encompasses everything a parent is doing for their child. So, the author's point is that this presence of discipline is not actually First, communicating to the Hebrews something that they've done. Again, we think, if I'm receiving discipline, what I am being told is, you're doing something wrong. Now, what the author is saying is that God's discipline is not first communicating something about what you've done. It's communicating something about who you are. It's telling you about your relationship more than it is saying anything about your performance. So verse 7 explains that everything we are called to endure as Christians falls within the category of discipline, which is not proof of something bad. It is proof of something good. It is not a sign that God hates us. It is a sign that God loves us. It's not a sign that he has rejected us. It is a sign that he has received us. The reason we are experiencing it is because God is treating us as sons and daughters. For if you were not God's child, you would not experience his discipline. The only children I discipline are my own children. I don't love and care for other children like I do my own. So when my kids receive my discipline, the first thing it's saying is, you are mine. I'm your dad. Not his dad, not her dad. I'm your dad. That's why I am treating you this way and not them. But it is also saying, I love you. How is it saying that? Because the purpose of parental discipline is the maturation and well-being of the child. It is to train and help them grow to be able to live well and be prepared for everything they're going to experience and face. And yes, this includes the negative side of reproof, correction, and punishment. But we need to be clear again of what we mean by punishment. 
because there are two kinds of punishment. Heard a lot of Christians ask as they're dealing with, with their sin and there's negative consequences. Is God punishing me? And that depends on what you mean by punishment. Because first, there is the punishment of retributive justice, which just means that the punishment is aimed at making sure the appropriate penalty is in place. You have done X, and it deserves Y, and that's what we are concerned about. The concern is justice. The concern is the penalty. It's not the person. So, it is the kind of punishment handed down by a judge. Here is the crime. Here is the just sentence. Christian, that is never the kind of punishment that you are receiving from God's hand, even when he is correcting you for your sin. Why? It is not because God doesn't care about his justice. It is simply that he has already dealt with his justice in the person of Christ when he sent him to the cross. So he's not ignoring the penalty. He has just executed that penalty as he executed his son on the cross. For the Christian, the punishment of justice has already been paid and satisfied with Jesus. So God is not punishing you in that way. But there's another kind of punishment, which isn't the punishment of a judge. It's the punishment of a parent. And this is what we would call correction, reproof, chastisement. But it's not aimed at retributive justice. It is aimed at the protection and preservation of the child. It is to teach and train the child in the way that they should go, because disobedience is the path to destruction. And so a parent who lets his child walk along the path of destruction unchecked is not a loving and good parent. Which is the author's point here. We know that God is a good and loving father. So if you're not being disciplined, there's only one conclusion. You're not actually his child. Because he will lovingly discipline all of his children. Loving parents correct and punish their children. Not to just inflict pain. But to protect and promote their good. The person, not the penalty, is what is emphasized in this kind of punishment. And yet even this kind of punishment, we know, this kind of discipline can be unpleasant, even painful. But it is a lesser pain to save you from a greater pain. Pain can be preservative. For example, a couple nights ago, I was... Making dinner, pulled the chicken out of the oven, set the hot pan on the stove. Little Winston, two years old, he is a sneaky and fast little two-year-old. And he zips up behind me and he reaches up because he wants the chicken now. And his arm brushes up against the pan. Now, what does he immediately do? He yanks his arm away. It is not because I said, 
Winston, it is not time for you to have chicken yet. It is because it hurt. And so he knew, I can't leave my arm there. That pain saved him from a much greater pain had he left his arm on there and the skin just starts to burn. In this way, the relative pain of parental correction, punishment, discipline, whatever you want to call it, teaches and trains the child regarding what is good and safe and promotes well-being, and it guards against what is bad, dangerous, and detracts from well-being. And so the author's point is that a parent who will not discipline his child is a bad, unloving parent, but God is a good, loving father. So sometimes discipline is like physical exercise. You're not being punished or corrected. You're just being trained and strengthened. Sometimes discipline is like school, which again, feels unpleasant, but you aren't sent to school because you did something bad. You're sent to school because your parents want you to learn and grow and be equipped to face life. But yes, sometimes this discipline is like parental punishment, done out of love and for your good. So kids, if your parents didn't care about you, if they didn't care about your safety and happiness and long-term well-being, then they would let you do whatever you want. Some of you are probably honestly thinking, I wish my parents would let me do whatever I want. That's how I know they love me. But can you imagine letting a two-year-old do whatever he wants? What if he wants to eat marbles? What if he wants to play in traffic and see how many cars he can dodge? What if he wants to jump into the pool without his floaties? What if this two-year-old really feels that he would be more comforted at night snuggling knives as opposed to stuffed animals? Would the loving parents say, you go ahead and snuggle your knives? No. Kids' discipline feels unpleasant, doesn't it? But this is actually what is going to help you live and live as well as you can. So the Christian finds strength to endure when he realizes that everything he is asked to endure falls within the category of loving discipline. And that discipline comes not only from a perfectly loving hand, it comes from a perfectly good and wise hand. Because again, kids, I'm going to be honest with you. Your parents love you. They are trying to do what is best for you. But we don't always know what is best. And sometimes we actually discipline in unrighteous anger as opposed to in righteous anger. We do the best we can. That's what the author essentially says. The, your earthly fathers, they disciplined you as they thought was best. And you respected them and you submitted to them. But the author comforts us. That's not how it is with your heavenly father. He actually knows what is best. He actually knows what is good and right. 
It's the point of verses 9 through 11. God knows exactly what you need. He knows how to discipline you in the right way, at the right time, in the right proportion. He knows what you can and cannot handle. And he knows the grace he will supply you to help you endure whatever he ordains for you. So you may be able to endure whatever he prescribes because you know he prescribes it as your father in love and for your good. And that's my closing observation. The pain has a point. Discipline feels unpleasant, whether it's exercise, school, or correction. But the discipline is purposeful. It's for your good, and that good includes your holiness. And why do you need to be holy? Because it is only the holy that can dwell with a holy God. Only the pure in heart will see God, Jesus says. And so, to make us happy, God must make us holy, because happiness is only found with him. So he is cleansing us, he is refining us, he is restoring us, so that one day we will be with him forever. He is fitting us for heaven. And that includes the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which means as God conforms you to Christ's righteousness, you will know Christ's peace, not only in heaven, but even here now. So remember, Christian, that God is doing everything as your father. He is doing it out of love, and he is doing it for your good to make you like him so you can be with him. And what then do you do? Your job is to respectfully submit to his wise and loving discipline and keep running. You're to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees by reminding yourself of these three truths. You see, often we think that when we get weak, weary, we need to stop running. We need to be able to catch our, our breath or recover from injury. But the race of faith is such that you will only find strength and recovery and healing when you keep running. It's like some sharks have to keep swimming to stay alive. We, as Christians, have to keep running to stay alive. So keep running by faith. Keep running the race that God has set before you, again knowing that it was set before you by your Father in love for your good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you do not give us whatever we want. Because a lot of times what we want would not serve our salvation. So I pray that you would continue to lovingly give us what we need. And that we would be thankful for it all. I pray that you would... Help us when we are weak and weary to remember who you are and how you feel about us. Pray that you would help us to trust your wisdom when we just don't understand. And when we don't understand your plan, I, I do ask that you would help us to trust your character. Thank you that in Christ you are not just our God, our judge. You are our Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.